They're all coming, okay? I'm gonna die. No, no. We're gonna stay on together, okay? They're all coming for you. And they are trying to get there as fast as they can. I don't want to die in Bristol. That was the voice of Amy Green, one of five shooting victims during a cross-country rampage eight years ago along Florida's Gulf Coast. That story and more are coming up on Sun Crime State. I'm Tony Holt, crime reporter with the Daytona Beach News Journal. Welcome to Sun Crime State, a weekly podcast that takes an in-depth look at Florida's biggest crime stories of the past and present. In this episode, I'll talk about the 40-year federal prison sentence for a Florida man accused of raping underage girls at a Haitian orphanage he had operated. And later, I'll discuss the January 14, 2010 massacre outside a Hernando County home that left two women dead and two other women wounded. The gunman in that case, John Kalish, drove three counties north to Dixie County, where he exchanged gunfire with deputies. He killed one before being shot himself. He survived his injuries and was later sentenced to death by a Hernando judge. Among my special guests for that segment will be Assistant State Attorney Pete Magrino and Colonel Mike Maurer of the Hernando County Sheriff's Office. You'll also hear from one of the shooter's relatives, who also happens to be the daughter of one of the shooting victims. You won't want to miss that. Coming up, the story about a Kissimmee woman who was kidnapped and killed during an alleged murder-for-hire plot that went awry. Ormond Beach Police confirmed Friday that the body found on a neighborhood street four days earlier was that of Janice Marie Zingotita Torres. After that, it was confirmed the 42-year-old wife and mother from Kissimmee was the victim of a botched murder-for-hire plot. Osceola County Sheriff's deputies arrested three people Friday and charged them with first-degree murder. The suspects are Ishnar Lopez Ramos, Gloria Ann Marie Quinones Montez, and Alexis Ramos Rivera. Lopez Ramos is accused of hiring Quinones Montez and Ramos Rivera to murder a woman who was dating a man she loved. As it turned out, they abducted and killed the wrong woman. During a media conference Friday, Osceola County Sheriff Russell Gibson described in detail the kidnapping. The suspects followed the victim to her apartment, and in the parking lot, they forcibly put the victim into the back of her own vehicle, and they drove away. The suspects drove to a nearby bank, where they forced the victim to give her ATM and her PIN code, uh, ATM card and her PIN code, uh, to them. Ishnar then got out of the vehicle and withdrew money from the victim's account. The suspects then drove both vehicles to the apartment in Orlando near the Millennium Mall. While Gloria Ann Marie was in the apartment, Alexis and Ishnar were in the victim's vehicle with the victim. While in the vehicle, the two of them realized that they had mistakenly taken the wrong person. Instead of being set free, the victim was killed. 
Zingatita Torres's body was dumped along Bennett Lane in Ormond Beach near North Nova Road. She was found by a Spectrum cable worker the morning of January 8th. On the same day the body was found, Osceola detectives reached out to Ormond Beach police, thinking the woman could be Zingotita Torres, and the match was confirmed Friday. Gibson admitted during Friday's media conference that it was hard for him to control his emotions. I get emotional because it just touches me so deeply that one of our citizens was killed in such a manner. Coming up, the story of a Florida man who operated an orphanage in Haiti so that he could have sex with underage girls. Thirty-six-year-old Daniel Pye was sentenced Wednesday in federal court to 40 years in prison on allegations he shuttled back and forth from Miami to Haiti to have sex with underage girls on the Caribbean island. Pye, formerly of Bradenton, operated an orphanage in Haiti, and authorities said that was where he would commit his sex crimes, according to the Miami Herald. Pye stood trial last fall. Prosecutors at the time depicted him as a missionary with a dark side. His entire purpose for traveling to Haiti was to prey upon girls. According to the Herald story, prosecutors told jurors that the defendant knew exactly what he was doing, traveling to Haiti for the purpose of having sex with minors. Pai's wife testified in his defense and said some of the children her husband was accused of raping actually remained in contact with him via social media. Jurors found Pai guilty of traveling from Miami to Haiti on three separate dates for the purpose of having sexual relations with the girls. Those incidents took place between 2006 and 2012, according to court testimony. Pye was arrested in his hometown of Ashtown, Arkansas. U.S. authorities called the practice of traveling from the U.S. to a foreign country to sexually abuse children as child sex tourism. One of the government's witnesses, according to the Herald story, was a pastor who testified that Pye had confessed to him that he had been in an inappropriate relationship with one of the children. She was 12 years old. Coming up, the story about a 2010 shooting rampage that began in Hernando County and ended with a cop killing in Dixie County. They're coming, Manessa. They're coming, sweetheart. Oh, oh come on, lady. They told them again. Tell them to hurry. They're coming lights and sirens. They really no, they're not. They can't. I know it feels like a long time because of your situation. I know that it feels like a long time, but they really are trying to come as fast as they can. Oh, there's blood everywhere. Oh my God. Okay, how old is your sister? Are you sure they're coming? Yeah, I'm over here. Over here. 
While on the phone with the 911 operator, Amy Green lay in the dirt behind a house on Wilhelm Road, bleeding from her shoulder and stomach. Moments earlier, John Kalish, a man she had never met, entered her employer's house with a 9mm handgun and several loaded magazines. Amy's employer, Kitty Donovan, was Kalish's sister. Kalish shot his sister first, killing her. Three other women were on the property, and Kalish chased each one down, pumping them with lead. A bullet had lodged in Amy's neck. It entered through the shoulder. Another bullet entered her stomach and exited out of her back. She felt herself getting drowsy as blood kept gushing out of her. She looked toward 18-year-old Manessa Donovan, her boss's daughter, and Kalish's niece, who was pregnant and seriously wounded. Then Amy turned toward Debbie Tillotson, her co-worker, who sounded as though she was drowning in her own blood. The shooter had sped away in a white van. He headed north on the Suncoast Parkway and then on US-19. The day of carnage wasn't yet over. Ninety minutes after the mass shooting in Brooksville came the gunfight in Cross City. By the time it was all done, three people were dead, including a Dixie County Sheriff's Captain, and three more were seriously injured, including Kalish. Manessa's unborn child also was dead. January 14, 2010 was one of the bloodiest days in Hernando County history. The fatal shooting of Captain Chad Reed was one of the most devastating deaths to occur in Dixie County. One of its favorite sons was killed in the line of duty. Before the shootings, Kalish was polarizing. There were those who felt he was overly temperamental or eccentric, perhaps even lecherous. Others found him to be warm and easy to talk to. He was an alcoholic who celebrated more than 20 years of sobriety, and he showed he had a knack for helping others put down the bottle. Some Alcoholic Anonymous members swore by him. Others felt he took advantage of substance abuse victims. Kalish, who was 55 years old at the time of the shootings, lived in various places throughout his adult life. He spent most of it in Colorado, Connecticut, and Florida. In an article I wrote for the Tampa Tribune a couple days after the shootings, I included quotes from a Colorado woman named Melissa Williams, who contacted me over the phone. Kalish had called her during his drive from Brooksville to Cross City. He told her what he had just done. Williams had been friends with Kalish for 14 years. He helped her get sober. He was the subject of a term paper she wrote while in college. He counseled her after her marriage ended. When Kalish spent his last day in Colorado before moving back to Florida, he spent it with her. He promised he would be back to see her. That day never came. Williams was heartbroken to hear that one of her life's biggest inspirations had shot four people. The John Kalish she knew didn't seem capable of shooting six people across two counties. 
Another of Kalish's friends who agreed to be interviewed told me she was aware Kalish had a troubled past. But the man she knew, and knew pretty well, was one who had unlimited compassion, strength, and generosity. But one person who noticed a shift in Kalish's behavior was Susie Grafe, Kitty Donovan's oldest daughter and Kalish's niece. She didn't believe the stories about Kalish being a good mentor. He was a transit, you know, he, he, he worked on roofs and chased storms. So my mother would let him stay for like a month at a time, sleep on the couch. And the, la- the last time, that's when he, he, when he stayed, he was getting weird. You know. Kalish had a number of run-ins with the law. In 2009, he was convicted in Hernando of aggravated assault with a deadly weapon and contributing to the delinquency of a minor. The delinquency charge was leveled against him because he had slid a CD of nude photos of himself under the mattress of his then 17-year-old niece. It was Manessa Donovan, the pregnant victim he shot on January 14, 2010, and the daughter of Kitty Donovan one of the women he killed that day. Kitty wanted nothing more to do with Kalish after that arrest. Kalish was put on probation, so that meant he couldn't travel to Colorado to resume his work as a roofer. He also had to pay for a defense and used up all of his deceased mother's inheritance. He stewed over that and blamed Manessa and Kitty for everything going wrong in his life. Kalish's life was spiraling. In AA, you learn to take responsibility for your misfortune. But Kalish wasn't inclined to do so after his 2009 conviction. He wanted to destroy Kitty and her entire bloodline. Kalish also had a felony weapons charge hanging over him in Connecticut, and his family was under the assumption that he was in jail awaiting trial for those charges. You know, as far as we know, he he was in Connecticut. We didn't even know he was back in Florida. So everything was quite fine, and everyone was very happy at the time. Manessa was pregnant and had a new boyfriend, and I had a new boyfriend. And uh, I was actually living with my mother at the time. So my new boyfriend, I was visiting at his house, but I was living with my mother um, and working for my mother out of that house. So I lost my mother and my job and my home in one instant. As it turned out, he was living in an RV park in Spring Hill. He was a 15-minute drive away from Kitty's house. On January 12, 2010, Kalish's home went up in flames. He had caused a propane tank explosion. After the fire, Kalish's brother, Robert, drove from Clearwater to help him salvage his possessions. Robert found $80 in cash and tried handing it to Kalish, but Kalish told his brother he didn't need money anymore. Then Robert found a bunch of AA chips that commemorated Kalish's years of sobriety. Kalish didn't take those either. They no longer meant anything to him. It seemed at that moment on January 13th, John Kalish had lost the will to live. That night, he got together with a friend of his and he fell off the wagon, downing a bottle of scotch. 
he drank well into the morning. That friend later told detectives he heard Kalish tell him that he blamed Kitty for ruining his life and that he was going to take out her and her family. Sometime around 9 a.m. on January 14th, Kalish left his friend's house and headed to a large piece of property owned by a family friend in Lake Lindsay, located north of Brooksville. Kalish brought with him his 9mm Beretta, which was equipped with a laser scope. He asked the property owner whether he could do some target shooting, and he said it was fine. But the property owner noticed something a little off about Kalish. He just didn't think anything of it. Kalish fired round after round into a tree stump. Still intoxicated, he got into his van and headed south down US-41 toward Kitty's house. Susie left her mother's house with her boyfriend around 2.45 p.m. Had the couple stayed a little while longer, it would have been six victims instead of four. It was believed that Kalish was sitting in his van, scoping the property at the corner of Wilhelm Road and Winter Street before making his move. About 10 minutes later, he did. Amy Green was shot. Kitty and Manessa Donovan were shot. So was Debbie Tillotson. How exactly did this happen? There was a man that came to the house and started shooting. I don't know who he is. Okay, who did this? A man, he came in the house and started shooting. Okay. He has gray hair, he wore a ball cap, and he had a gray sweatshirt on. A blue blue shirt, sweatshirt. Please help. Okay. Amy was panicking in pain and struggling to provide the 911 operator all the information she could. She remained on the phone for close to nine minutes until the first group of Hernando County Sheriff's deputies showed up. Please help, I'm bleeding. I know, they're on there. How many people are shot? There's three, there's four of us. Okay. Vanessa, stay calm, baby. Stay calm. The ambulance are on the way. didn't go when they left. Do you know what kind of vehicle they left in? No, man. He came to me and started shooting at me. I didn't even see him come inside the house. I was outside. Kalish entered through the unlocked front door. His 61-year-old sister, Kitty, was inside near the rear of the house. She saw Kalish, who was no longer welcome there. She yelled out, What the hell are you doing here? Kalish cycled his weapon, even though he already had a round in the chamber. After the bullet was discharged, he aimed the gun at Kitty and fired. Kitty was shot three times, twice in the back. At that point, Kitty's employee, 59-year-old Debbie Tillotson, who was outside the sliding doors, turned and tried to escape. Kalish fired through the glass. He came outside and shot Deborah at least a couple more times and left her to die on the wet flower bed. Kalish's next victim was Amy Green. She screamed at him, Please don't shoot me. I'm only here to feed the horses. During an interview weeks later with detectives, Kalish, showing his coldness, said one of the women he shot was someone he had never met before. He said she was running around and yelling like an idiot. Amy lay on the dirt 
on the east side of the house. Kalish had one more target, his niece, Manessa. Here is prosecutor Pete Magrino describing how Kalish gunned down his fourth victim. After Amy was shot and went down, then Kalish fired a number of rounds. Uh, Manessa was struck and she went down. And, and in fact, as he walked up to her, uh, she, to use her phrase, didn't move because she felt that if she didn't move and, and acted as though she was already dead, he wouldn't shoot her again. Playing possum saved her life. Kalish believed he had killed all four women and fled. He went back to his van and headed south on Winter Street, the only entrance or exit into the neighborhood. It's a mile-long corridor. He then made a right turn on State Road 50 and headed west toward the Suncoast Parkway. Amy, who was lying in proximity to Manessa, made her frantic call to 911. I'm not feeling good right now. Please help. Okay, that's why we're going to stay on the phone together, okay? I feel like I'm getting sleepy. You feel like you're, they're, they're trying to get there as fast as they can. They're all going lights and sirens, okay? We have fire rescue. We have deputies all trying to get there as fast as they can. I can't believe this guy came in and shot us. I don't know who he is. I just started working here last week. Manessa was lying in a fetal position. Kitty was likely dead by this time. Debbie's breathing was shallow. She was minutes from expiring. Amy had heard sirens from a distance, but those sounds seemed to stop. I don't hear them anymore. Why don't I hear them anymore? Did they? I don't want to die. They're all coming, okay? I'm going to die. No, no. We're going to stay on together, okay? They're all coming for you, and they are trying to get there as fast as they can. Amy, who lived in Port Ritchie, did not want her last living seconds to consist of her lying in a field near some horse manure in a city she didn't care for. Oh, it's taking too long. I don't want to die in Bristol. When the first deputy saw Amy, she had blood smeared on her right arm and blood all over her shirt. She was in the best condition of the four victims. Manessa was gasping for breath and was crying. She had suffered five gunshot wounds, two in the chest, one in her left hip, one in her left rib cage, and another on her right hand. Debbie had four gunshot wounds. When deputies arrived, she was barely breathing. By the time paramedics arrived, she was dead. Kitty was shot three times, including twice in the back. The women were shot a total of 14 times. Manessa was able to tell the first deputy at the scene who had shot her. The name John Kalish was passed on to dispatch. Deputies learned he was on felony probation and got his cell phone number. An emergency ping order was obtained. Colonel Mike Mauer, now second in command at the Hernando County Sheriff's Office, was the chief of operations at the time of the shootings. He was tasked with catching Kalish, while others processed the scene on Wilhelm. Maurer described how quickly the process was carried out, from obtaining the order 
to notifying other agencies to be on the lookout for Kalish's white van. Yes, and we were lucky to be able to get that quickly. And then through our crime analysis unit and, uh, you know, the relationships that they had developed through the years with the different phone carriers, we were able to quickly start what we call pinging a phone, or at least knowing where, what towers it's hitting. And obviously, you know, when you start seeing the towers hitting, you know, Homosassa, Crystal River, you know, you know that he's heading up, he's heading up 19. My focus was, was his apprehension. And we had our air unit up, I remember, and we just told the air unit to start flying north on 19 to try to locate it. And we also had contacted the uh, U.S. Marshals Tallahassee, the Fugitive Apprehension Unit. And we started sending teletypes to all the counties along U.S. 19, you know, to keep a lookout for them. Kalish benefited from the location of Wilhelm. Once he sped down Winter and turned onto State Road 50, he only had to go a half mile to get to the Suncoast Parkway. He also benefited from the time of day. There was little traffic, and the highways were rural. There was no traffic jam along his escape route. Kalish got onto the Sun Coast and crossed the Citrus County line in a matter of minutes. He took the Sun Coast to the northernmost point and headed west on US 98 and then north on US 19. Then he traveled through Levy County, all while talking on the phone to various people, boasting about what he had done. Those phone calls gave away his location. Law enforcement located him after he crossed the Dixie County line. The uh, Dixie County guys, they, they actually, uh, the unit spotted him in Old Town, and they were following him, and they're actually, Captain Reed was, you know, they're like, they were like, well, just, they, their plan was not to take him down until he was uh, on the out, outside, that big, long stretch outside of uh, Cross City. They were going to, the plan was to, 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 to down him up there where it was, you know, that's not, not Cross City isn't densely populated for the most part, but it is the most populated area of Dixie County. Deputies did not want to jeopardize any bystanders or motorists. But once Kalish spotted the unmarked vehicles, he gave deputies no choice but to engage. One of the units, uh, as they were coming southbound on 19, jumped over the medium and Cleese saw that. And, well, and then he looked in his rearview mirror and he realized, I think it was like a Crown Vic at the time, or you know, so it was obviously police-looking vehicle. And then uh, saw the mark, there was a marking the back there, and then he shot right, they said he shot right into, and pulled the U.E. went right into the gas station, and they all boxed him in. And even as they were shooting, you know, as they were boxing him in, he just started shooting over his shoulder. Kalish reportedly never turned around to look where he was shooting. He just sprayed the pursuing deputies with 9mm rounds. One random bullet entered the mouth of Captain Chad Reed. It was a fatal blow. Deputies returned fire, and Kalish was shot twice, including once in the neck. The bullet blew apart his windpipe. He was taken to Shands Hospital at the University of Florida in Gainesville, and he survived his injuries. Reed was a native of Dixie County and started his career as an EMT. Then he became a deputy. His experience and intelligence and leadership made him a favorite of the department. 
Sources said he was being groomed to succeed Sheriff Dewey Hatcher, once Hatcher retired. Reed was 33 years old. He was survived by his wife and two sons. The news of Reed's death rocked the Hernando County Sheriff's Office. A deputy in another jurisdiction was killed by a Hernando suspect. Not only that, but Hernando deputies lived through a similar tragedy. One of their own, Captain Scott Beerweiler, was killed in an automobile crash 11 months earlier. A car thief had smashed into Beerweiler's agency vehicle, killing him instantly. Beerweiler, like Hatcher, was expected to become sheriff someday. It was a lot for Mauer to process. It was very painful because I don't know if you know, but but Scott Beerweiler was a dear friend of mine. And um, you know, when, when we talked about the future, uh, he was going to run for sheriff, and I was going to be the chief deputy. And um, and I and I was I rolled up. I had I had talked to Scott or texted Scott on on the phone that morning about coffee, and told he was already telling me he's re- leaving the house. And I was ten minutes behind him, and I you know I was there after, you know shortly after the accident, and unfortunately you know saw him in the car and all that sort of stuff. So you know I can definitely. You know, relate to the pain that the members of Dixie County had, uh, and to this day, I actually still keep in touch with uh, Chad Reed, uh, Captain Reed's wife, the uh, Sheriff Hatcher. You know, I think every time he sees me, I think he, it, it brings back memories that. Mauer was the one sent by then Hernando County Sheriff Richard Nugent to Dixie once the news broke that Reed had been killed. Mauer remembers driving upon the scene and seeing somber faces and seeing command staff from other neighboring sheriff and police agencies paying their respects. Cross City is on the way to Tallahassee from Brooksville. Each time Mauer makes that drive, he remembers the one he had to make eight years ago yesterday. To this day, I always, you know, I go to Tallahassee a lot, unfortunately, <laughs> and, you know, do a little, say a little prayer every time I go by that gas station. I don't ever want to pull into it again. Magrino, an assistant state attorney for the Fifth Judicial Circuit, handles the bulk of first-degree murder cases in Hernando. Kalish, after what he had done to the four women on Wilhelm, faced the death penalty. Prosecutors in Dixie declined to pursue the death penalty in Reed's death. Reports at the time stated that Reed's family preferred not to go through an emotional trial. Kalish pleaded guilty in Dixie and was sentenced to life in prison. Even though Magrino was prosecuting Kalish for the murders of Kitty Donovan and Debbie Tillotson, as well as the shootings of Manessa Donovan and Amy Green, he had Reed on his mind throughout the trial. Before he became a prosecutor, Magrino was a cop. Uh, I'll say it was a controlled, controlled rage. Certainly, I, uh, with my background, as you mentioned, I started out as a police officer in Dade County in 1975. And since that time, although I uh, have become a prosecutor, uh, I have kept my... Florida Law Enforcement Certification Active, so um, um, 
I'm still a sworn law enforcement officer aside from being an assistant state attorney. And, and in my own evaluation of cases, from my perspective, you know, the, the worst crime there is is a murder of a law enforcement officer in the line of duty because all that law enforcement officer is trying to do is to provide for public safety and provide for for his family but yes i mean i i uh, uh unfortunately I, i've prosecuted too many cop killers or murderers of law enforcement officers um and i take that to heart Kalish was tried two years after the shootings. The trial lasted for close to two weeks. The testimony from Manessa and Amy seemed to have the biggest impact on the jurors. Manessa showed up in court wearing all black. As she walked toward the stand to be sworn in, she made a point to look over her right shoulder and stared defiantly at her uncle, whom she used to affectionately call Uncle Shorty. All that affection drained out of Manessa. By then, her uncle was the monster who killed her mother and her unborn baby. Manessa was two months pregnant when she was shot by Kalish. She miscarried just prior to her emergency surgery. She described how Kalish stood over her and fired several rounds into her body. She described playing dead in the hopes he would stop. Manessa also described seeing her mother through the sliding glass door fall to the floor after being shot. Manessa described Kalish's expression to that of someone possessed by a demon. She was a superb witness. She just, and, and it had to have been tough for her, but given what she went through, her recollection of the events was was spot on and she carried herself well i think the jurors clearly saw how she felt about what kalish had done to her her other friends and her mother and it just came through she did a superb job amy's testimony also had impact she almost didn't even testify even crossing the county line into Hernando gave her extreme anxiety. Walking into a courtroom and sitting in front of her shooter seemed like an impossible task. She nearly fell to pieces doing it, but she held it together. On the phone, you could hear it in her voice asking for help, and I don't want to die in Brooksville. Well, she didn't want to, she, she didn't want to come to Brooksville and testify for the trial. That's how how traumatic the experience was for her. We kept her 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 time here at the courthouse to a to a bare minimum to try and ease the trauma to her. Jurors also heard from Kalish himself. He didn't take the stand, but a video of his interview with Hernando County Sheriff's Detective Brian Falkingham and Florida Department of Law Enforcement Investigators Barb McGraw and April Glover was played to the jury. The interview took place 12 days after Kalish's surgery. He was sedated, lying in a hospital bed, and his voice was weak. But he was forthcoming about his motives 
for shooting Kitty and Manessa and said he had intended to erase Kitty's bloodline. Tell me about your operation or your plan that you're talking about. Yeah, at least the hell out of Kitty and her blood. That was your plan? Did you ever get to carry that out? Well, I got arrested for him. What was the plan, Tom? Kalish wasn't sure whether he fully carried out his plan, so he asked Falkingham whether Kitty was dead. The detective didn't give him the satisfaction, and he flipped the question back to him in an effort to get Kalish to admit to the shootings. What's that? Did she live? Did who live? Kitty. From what? From what happened that day. What happened that day? When I went over there, tried to shoot everybody. Okay. When you say everybody, how many people were there? Did you shoot anybody? Five, six. Okay. The trial was dramatic and at times strange. A group of Kitty's and Manessa's relatives attended each day of the trial. Amazingly, they were there to give their support to the defendant. In spite of what he had done, Kalish still had his support group. Even Magrino, who was laser-focused on his job, noticed them. They made a lasting impression. I, I never made it to their Christmas card list um, <laughs> because in, in conversations with them, from, from my perspective, obviously it was, was no hide-and-go-seek thing that, you know, uh, I wanted him to, to get a death sentence. You know, it's, it's, I can't remember which one, but they, they were, John's had his problems. And this problem is really not John's. What caused the problem was was Manessa and her mother. And yes, I know I'm a career prosecutor, but wait a second. You know, no, you're not going to be blaming the victim for what this guy did to them. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm like... Uh, do you hear what you're saying? Come on, will ya? You know, and, and yes, I know that he had an alcohol problem and he got past it to a certain degree and he helped others in that regard. That's a good thing. But, but we're not talking about a thief here. We're talking about a triple murderer, one of whom was a law enforcement officer and two other ladies that... Jurors convicted Kalish and recommended death. It was unanimous. The judge who had sentenced him had never sentenced anyone to death before. Judge Daniel Merritt Sr. choked back tears as he said the words, May God have mercy on your soul. Kalish was the first Hernando defendant sentenced to death in almost 20 years. Kalish was sent to death row in Stark. Kalish was 57 when he stood trial, 
he looked closer to 87. He was visibly slowed by his injuries and his years of alcohol abuse and working on rooftops and living a transient lifestyle seemed to have accelerated the aging process. In November 2015, Kalish died of natural causes. Magrino, when he was interviewed by me after the sentencing, seemed to think Kalish wouldn't survive long enough to feel that cold needle in his arm, and he seemed fine with that. He couldn't have been more candid about his feelings when he talked to me over the phone last week. I don't care how they die. I just want them to die. They should die sooner as opposed to later for what they did. You know, here we have somebody like Kalish, who aside from murdering his sister and Mrs. Tillotson and, and taking and putting their families through everything that they put them through, Amy Wilson was was a basket case because of what she went through and survived. Um, Manessa losing her baby and, and going through that. And on top of that, Captain Reed getting murdered the way he got murdered, leaving two young sons and a widow. Susie Grafe avoided being gunned down by a mere 10 minutes. Kalish, who was in such a frenzied state of mind, actually told detectives he thought Susie was one of the victims he'd killed. She misses her mother, but she kept her legacy alive by taking over Kitty's business. Today, Susie was scheduled to give birth to her first child. That means Kalish's plan failed. Kitty's bloodline is actually multiplying. You know, you say you want to wipe out our bloodline, and I've gone from not having a home or a job or a family to starting my own family having I'm having a baby now. So I don't know, I just think he should be forgotten. Um, really, he, he didn't succeed in what he's trying to achieve. There was a time when people loved John Kalish. He was seen as an angel in AA circles. But Susie never bought into that narrative. She's relieved that he's gone. He wasn't this great man who saved people's lives through AA. It was quite the opposite. He was a predator, and the world is better off without him. Thank you for listening. Tune in next week when I discuss the bizarre and sadistic life of former carnival worker and serial killer Oscar Ray Bolin. My special guest will be former Tampa Tribune reporter Lisa Davis. Join us then. You can find Tony on Twitter at Tony Crime Writer or email him at tony.holt at news-jrnl.com. Be sure to rate us on iTunes. Sun Crime State is recorded by Tony Holt and produced by Chris Bridges for the Daytona Beach News Journal. Thank you.